member. He's awesome. And uh, I really look up to him. And uh, with that, I'll give you Alex. The only reason you look up to me is because I'm 6'5". That's it, man. I'm Alex. I'm an alcoholic. Um, my sobriety date is June 17, 2008, so it gives me a little bit over four years. Um, I have a sponsor uh, who has a sponsor. I sponsor guys who should be sponsoring guys if they would take my suggestions. Um, I, do, I do have a home group. It is this, the tradition group. It's the greatest home group in the world. That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, I'm supposed to talk for 45 minutes about myself, which is funny because I love talking about myself. As soon as I have to do it around people that, you know, I want to help and stuff, I guess, freaking me out. But um, <laughs> just like go ahead and get started. Um, let's see, I was born eventually. Um, I was born, let's see, um, into a really normal household. That's the fact. That's how I know that this disease has such a biological basis is because I was born into, like, the most normal household you could ask for. There's, I mean, I had the very fortunate ability to never have any big childhood traumas or anything like that. But for some reason, with, given all that, I still never felt normal. I always felt like there was just something off. And it sound, you hear it all the time in these rooms. It's just, I felt like I didn't get the memo on life that everyone else did. I saw other people just doing whatever they were doing. It was just, you know totally taken aback by it. I didn't really know how to go about being alive, you know. Um, I was definitely a weirder kid. Um, I got made fun of a lot, I'm pretty sure. Um, <laughs> so, that was awesome. Um, let's see. Uh, I mean, yeah, like I said, I was really a nervous kid, pretty neurotic in all honesty. I just didn't understand how to function in the world around me. But, um, I had an older brother who went to college about sometime when I was in middle school, and he loved the idea of kind of like taking me under his wing, showing him how to party and stuff like that. And I remember about being um, about nine years old, I was at a Kappa Sigma fraternity party. <laughs> Started early, you know? Yeah. Um, Kappa Sigma fraternity party, playing beer pong, and I think we actually won that night, which is cool. But, I, you know, it's funny, even then, I didn't actually drink that night, but what I did see was everyone around me drinking and having a good time. And for some reason, just, I didn't know the time, but being part of something greater than themselves. And I saw that, and I feel like that's... <clears throat> That's honestly what I've been seeking this entire time, and I never found it until I actually came to AA. Um, but I saw that, and I wanted it. And I saw alcohol involved, and I said, that's, I guess, going to be how we're going to have to go about getting that. Um, I don't remember when my first drink was. I remember it was at some college party of my brother's. Um, it did not taste good. I did not enjoy it the first time whatsoever. But the first time I got buzzed was a totally different story. It was fantastic. I mean, like... It literally just made sense. I remember sitting on whatever section I was and just going, okay, this has got to be how normal people feel all the time. You know what I mean? And literally, it was just like, I'm going to do this every second I can for as long as I can. And that's just how I, I felt. When you're, I don't know, I was like 12 or 13 or 15 or something around there, you can't just get drunk all the time, whether you want to or not. Um, so, you know, throughout high school, I found that, and I thought it was all of a sudden a lot cooler than people because I had something that kind of made me normal. Got a huge attitude problem at that point, total problem with authorities, 
got um, got into some trouble, not huge trouble, but just school trouble and things like that. Um, but it was okay. Whatever whatever it was, I knew that got the chance on the weekend. I could drink, I could, and I could feel normal. I could I could talk to people. Um, about sometime when I first got to high school, around middle school, I started developing these really bad anxiety disorders. And I mean, to the point where <clears throat> if I was around people and I was going into it sober, I would be absolutely shaking, my hands would be clammy, I'd vomit, I would, I would just get, I mean, just absolutely, just completely fatigued. I mean, I was absolutely just a nervous wreck of a human being. Um, and what was hard about that is even trying to drink alcohol quickly didn't work. I'd always go back up because I was so nervous. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about drugs just because they were, they, were, they were around. I mean, I think for most of us, they were around. Um, I do know this is an AA meeting. So I call myself an alcoholic. Now, I could also call myself an alcoholic, drug addict, codependent, this, that, whatever you want to call it. But the fact of the matter is this. Here in AA, we don't claim to have a solution for anything besides alcoholism. And as representative of AA, in an AA meeting, I choose to call myself an alcoholic because that's what I want to convert to the newcomer. We have a solution for alcoholism. I've seen it work for other things, but we don't claim to have anything besides that. Um, but so, uh, what was that? Exactly. Yeah, so um, what I found was this really cool combination where I could, I could smoke a little bit of pot, ease myself, and then start drinking. That would sustain me the rest of the night. And that was the exact route. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, I mean, throughout high school, other stuff were involved. You know, some drugs were involved, but the, the bad boy always was alcohol for me. If I was doing something in one hand, the other hand I had alcohol in it, no matter what. I would drink when people say, you, should, you really shouldn't take that and drink at the same time. And I was like, what? <laughs> Why take it then? You know? But I took it anyway. Um, but over time, you know, drinking like, I remember once my mom started working, I, I all of a sudden had all this time to myself, especially before school, during summers and stuff like that. As a senior in high school, I remember starting to drink at about noon, whenever I could. Um, which I've been told, you know, lately that it's not necessarily normal to do so. But I, I did, and uh, that was probably the first time yet that all of a sudden my friends were starting to talk about my drinking, which is really impressive because my friends all like to party hard, man. I mean, it, yeah. Um, I had a friend of mine named Jason who was totally hammered when he told me, but he told me that I had a problem with drinking and I needed to quit. And he was hammered, so I wasn't going to listen to him, you know, but um, I also had a lot of friends. I was in a band at the time, and they were like, dude, you can't hit the bottle before you go out there. I mean, it's just, can you maybe try not drinking before you go on, or, you know, what's going on, because it was just a mess. But continued again, got in some more trouble with alcohol and drugs um, for parents and schools and things like that. Got into a good college, went to Georgia College and State University. Um, by the time I actually got on my own, that was when all structure that was kind of forced on me was gone. And I could finally exercise my will as I pleased. And that was just, it was go time, you know. Um, I chose, at first it wasn't every day, but it definitely got that way. I ended up working at a bar. Um, I remember one time in particular, I started working at a bar. Um, 
where they would, you could drink on a tab, and then at the end of the two-week period, they would knock off 25% of whatever the cost of your tab was, and then they deduct that out of your paycheck. I was working like 36 hours a week at this point. I was like, you know, supporting that. Um, so you get like, I don't know, $400 paycheck or something like that at the end of the period. I remember getting a paycheck for negative $12 one time. <laughs> you know? That first thought was not like, man, I should slow down. It was, you know, I did order a couple of large pizzas when I was there. It's probably, it's probably what happened. Yeah, it was probably pizzas. I probably did it. But, you know? Like, totally not. The alcohol was not the problem at this point. Um, but, I talked to eight, maybe? Something like that? Okay, but I'm hanging with that. Okay. Um, you know, uh, that went on for about a year. Um, eventually got to a point where I would drink when I wasn't planning on drinking. Um, at first, it was just kind of like, huh, oh, I didn't plan on drinking that, but, you know, it's, you know, whatever. I guess it's cool. You know, and then it turned into... I have a really big test I need to study for. A really big test I got first thing in the morning that I can't be late to. I'm already really doing bad in this class. And I find myself drinking. And it turned into, I don't want to drink tonight. And there's a part of the big book where it talks about how, you know, Bill found himself pounding on the bar saying, how did this happen again? And that's exactly what happened to me. The, the craziest part about it was that thought is immediately supplanted by, okay, well, I'll just stop at the sixth drink. Or what's the use anyhow? And that's how it was for me. Eventually, I would trick myself into saying, okay, I'll stop at two, or okay, I'll stop at three, or okay, I'll stop at six, I'll stop at ten, whatever. Um, or it would turn out to, it's no use. Let's just, let's just have a good time, something like that. And the worst part was, by that point, it did not end up being a good time at all. I remember literally, if you've ever been to Milledgeville, it's not necessarily the cleanest part of town. Um, I remember literally crawling on, my, on all fours, back to my dorm because I literally could not stand up. I remember being kicked out of bars. I remember being threatened. I remember the whole bit because I was drunk. I was obviously disorderly and I had a huge problem with anyone who was trying to cross my path. Anyone I felt kind of insecure around, I would do every everything in my power to prevent them or to make sure other people around me didn't like them as much as they liked me. Because that's, that's, how, that's how I am, man. I mean, I got it if... You know, if I don't feel right, i got to make sure somebody else doesn't feel right more. You know, that's just, it's been my style until I got sober. Um, but that turned into, I can't get out of bed unless I know where I'm drinking. Um, and at that point, slowly but surely, I was like, okay, I need to figure out exactly where I'm drinking tonight. And it's usually where I work. Um, but they started being like, man, this guy's drinking too much, you know what I mean? Um, so it turned into trying to figure out where I was going to drink and just kind of go throughout my day so I knew when that released. And I remember, I remember hearing Kat, here's Kathy, it's Kathy somewhere, um, she's here, but I remember her saying coolest thing to me. She was like, don't you know, like when you're on the way to get alcohol or on your way to get whatever, that even then you kind of feel that release already. You know what I mean? And that was the craziest thing. I could not live without the realization that eventually I would be drunk that day. You know? Like, that's, that's kind of where it took me. And eventually, whatever was happening between when I woke up and when I was drinking stopped happening. Um, I absolutely stopped going to school. I woke up to drink, or I woke up absolutely just 
painfully hungover to where I was like, I can't, I need to take some time off. Absolutely. And by the end of the day, I was drunk again. And I could not tell you how that happened, but it did. Um, eventually, I got arrested for uh, misdemeanor possession of marijuana and minor possession of alcohol. Um, and they said, you're an alcoholic? And I said, no, I'm not. And they said, well, we're going to send you this little treatment thing off campus so you can be evaluated. And I was like, okay. So, you know, being the smart, you know, established student that I was, I went research, you know, I was like, okay, what is the healthy amount of alcohol some people you know, a day? Apparently, normal people don't drink alcohol every day, so that answer was not on Google. But, um, you know, I kept on trying to, like, okay, so the average person drinks four drinks every time they go out. They just have to say that. And they kind of, you know, gather my thoughts, because that that's what we do to make sure, you know, other people kind of control things, you know, and then we convince ourselves that's how it is. Um, and so I go in there, and they totally ask me the questions that I wasn't prepared for. They're like, so how many, how many drinks do you usually drink when... Drink and I was like, I don't know, definitely no more than three or four ever. That's just, and he was like, How often do you drink? And I was like, oh, Too much, Jesus. Um, <laughs> it's like, I don't know, two times a week sound good? I, I, you know, I mean, I saw right through it. They're like, Okay, they just stopped answering questions. They're like, All right, you need to go to this little, this little thing we got going on, and you know. It was like a little outpatient thing, and I hated it, man. I was so pissed off that I had to go, because I was like, this guy at this clinical thing is, like, recommending to the courts that I go to his clinical thing, so that's conflict of interest, man. You can't be doing sh- sh- stuff like that or whatever. <laughs> I mean, it can't be legal, can it? I mean, it's ridiculous, you know what I mean? I, of course, didn't have a lawyer at that point, because I was not telling my parents whatsoever. Um, but, of course, eventually they found out. Um, they were not happy, so I guess I, when I... I'm trying to even remember this timeline of all this. Um, I remember going to these ridiculous things that they called AA meetings down there, and it was just like a graveyard. I was just dying. I was not happy to be there. I was like, oh my God, these people are just backwoods, nothings. I'm so different than them. And just no matter what they said, if they could have said, my name is Alex Barnes, I'm an alcoholic, I'm a college student at GCSU, I would have been like, that guy's crazy. You know what I mean? <laughs> nothing like me. Um, so I continued on. Little things like eventually I convinced myself that, okay, if I took a drug test in my probation officer's meeting, you know, I could smoke pot for, you know, the first week afterwards, and then it's just, you know, it comes out. And, you know, I can drink, obviously, as much as I want. It just comes out of your system, this and that. And it just ran together, man. I mean, I ended up like... Like I said, I don't have control over this thing. I ended up going, showing up to my, yeah, what was last night? It happens, man. Um, I was, I ended up showing up to probation meetings absolutely hungover. My probation officer was not convinced. Um, I ended up a few months into it, probably four or five months into a failing drug test. They told me, okay, well, since you still can't do this, we're going to petition to send you to jail for ten months. I was like, that's just not going to work, man. Um, it's not. So got my parents involved. Again, they come out a boatload of cash to get me a good lawyer. And so you get this drop down to, okay, now you have to go to this outpatient class thing. And I can't even remember all the details at this point. I never did any of it. It was a lot of community service things that were just difficult for somebody who had a purpose, you know what I mean? Still, um, 
had things I had to be doing. Um, so eventually, I, I come home from the summer. I get, I get, you know, Phil dragged us some big work. Come home from the summer. My absolutely, my parents are decently concerned at this point. I found out later for the first time in 20 years of marriage through two older siblings that went through a hell of a time that they actually slept in separate bedrooms for the first time in their marriage over my drinking because they couldn't figure out what to do for me. I had a lot of stuff going on the outside. You know, it talks about in the big book, The Alcoholic Lives a Double Life. And I identify with that a lot. On one side, I was you know, my parents' child. I was an Eagle Scout at 14. I made very, very good grades. It was just not. It was just something I saw and I got obsessed over it. That's all it was. But, uh, yeah, I was an Eagle Scout. I was founder of a National Honor Society for Boy Scouts. I was an honor student, made into a, some colleges that I didn't go to. And under my direction, I uh, was this blackout drunk that abused my friends, took advantage of women, used you know anything I could to get out of myself because I hated who I was. And I was afraid that if you saw who I actually was and I was just me around you, that you hated it. So I'm back, back home, you know, still working to try to support my habits at some later job or whatever. Going on, and eventually it gets to the point where my brother-in-law, who, by the way, backtrack, my brother-in-law was kind of my partner in crime. He would actually check me out of school so we could go drink and then drop me back off for calculus class. You know, and, um, yeah, so I don't know why. I never understood why I actually went back to school whenever I was drunk. It just, it's still to this day kind of amazes me that I did that. But I actually got to make amends to that teacher, and I randomly saw her um, at a gas station. It was just the funniest remark ever because I was like, I'm so sorry that whatever I did in your class, I'm actually an alcoholic, I was actually drunk in your class pretty much every day. And she just kind of goes... Central, but that's what she said comments came from, wasn't it? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, it was the only thing she could say. And I was like, I'll believe it. I'll believe I did that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was me, man. You know? Um, but <laughs> I also, um, I also, another funny story that I've been told I have to tell. Um, you know how you see on TV, like, people try to ride ostriches and things like that? <laughs> so. I end up absolutely obliterated on this farm, and they have two emu on this farm. Okay, so this, the, the guy that I know, like, this, I don't know this guy at all that I'm on this farm. He sounds exactly like Forrest Gump. So I'm like, what are those? And he's like, hey, there's two emu that we just got dropped off. I don't I never knew. They told me that we had the land to hold them, so we hold them. And I was like, I'm going to rob one of them. <laughs> So, so I'm, I'm looking at these guys. They're messing with emus first. They're, like, driving their little, like, four-wheelers around. Those emus are keeping tied to the four-wheelers. They're going, like, 45, 50-mile-an-hour birds, you know what I mean? My height, which is impressive. So I, like, hop in the little emu thing. Um, this big, like, horse chain. I don't know, man. Anyway, I hop in there, and I, like, kind of like emu whisperer my way up to one of them. I just kind of, yeah. There's, if you guys don't already know, there's no graceful way to try to get on top of a giant bird. There's not. So I'm like, <laughs> and then, dude, you like that? Yeah, it was a good technique. It worked until the emu just sat down. And I was, just, at that point, I was literally just like this. 
over in Emu, and everyone's looked. All, they just poke, pick that moment to look, and it looks like I'm just giving it to the senior at this point. <laughs> I mean, just loving it strong. So, you know, and I'm like screaming for some reason. I named her like Karen or something. So I'm like, damn it, Karen, get up! You know, all that kind of stuff. And of course, the force comes was just like, well, I don't believe that. I don't go on top of that, Amy. <laughs> It's like me, my sister, my brother, that's it. So, you know, I'll talk to my, you know, my sponsee. My sponsee was talking about, like, you know, he was like, I think I need to put my sister's dog in my, in my eight step, because, you know, and he was really mean to him. And I was like, well, dude, I didn't even you on mine, so I think you're in good shape. You know what I mean? so, so, I tell you those stories because. <laughs> I mean, it was a lot of fun involved. I did not continue to do alcohol at first because it was boring or it wasn't fun. I had a lot of fun, I had a lot of laughs, and I met a lot of people that I felt very close to when I was, out, when I was drinking alcohol. You know, and that's immediate, so it was perfect. Um, but eventually, those, you know, there was a couple bad times that would happen, which turned into a lot more bad times, which turned into a couple good times happening here and there. Just turned into maintenance, you know, and that's that's where it stops. At that point, you know, you, I, I was living to drink, because I, I, I could not, I could not, I was dead inside. I really was, and I had to have those crazy, chaotic experiences just to feel something. You know, um, it was <laughs> Earl Hightower talks about. It. He's like, my idea of a good time was sitting around checking my pulse. Yeah, I mean, I had to have those chaotic moments, so I knew that I was still alive, so I could feel something, so I could feel human. You know, and that's not a good way to live. But I found in here is I can, after I've tried spiritual solutions, it's not the case anymore. I can actually go throughout the day, and I can actually feel big spiritual experience just talking with that. You know, bringing somebody through the twelve and twelve, or I'm sorry, bringing somebody through the big book, the twelve steps, seeing the light come on in their eye. I mean, that is infinitely more rewarding than those couple chaotic times that I got to rise out of some people. Um, back, to, back to the shitty part. Okay, so um, um, at this point, like my brother-in-law, actually, the first time, back, yeah, brother-in-law, um, he was, he actually brought me outside after I was just done, man. I mean, at this point, I was emotionally just told I didn't know how to go on. I didn't even. I still didn't actually see a problem with drinking. I just felt like I was just dead, man. Um, but he told me, you know, listen, your family. And this is what he told me about my parents. He told me that my my family has kind of turned their back on me, which is a tall order. I'm real close to my family. Um, and he says you need to do something about it. And that that was the first time. I remember sitting on my driveway outside that I actually had an earnest prayer to God. Just and I wasn't talking about alcohol. I wasn't talking about getting sober. I just said, God, I need something. I need some sign of what I'm supposed to be doing right now. I don't know. I, I think I had some pretty strong language when I said it, but I told him I didn't. I could not do something subtle. You know, I needed like I think my exact words were like flaming unicorn running across the hood of my car, just blunt force trauma stop. You know, what I mean. Just, God should be on my side, you know what I mean? Um, but I don't know how much longer after that was um, still on probation, still a violation of probation, on probation for the violation of probation. I get a DUI. Um, and this is June 15th. I'm sorry, this is, yeah, 
This is June 17th of 2008. My first niece was born June 15th. So, the time in her life and in my sister and my brother-in-law's life where all the attention should be on them, I took that away from them. And they will never be able to get that back. All the attention went right back on me and how I was messing up. Um, I was told I was not allowed to meet my niece at all until something changed. Um, at that point, I literally, sitting in, I remember I was filling out paperwork at the jail, and one of the questions was, are you an alcoholic? First time I checked, yes. I was thoroughly convinced at that point. Now, like they say in this room, I, have, I got the ass beaten with my name on it. Um, I was done. I knew there was a problem, and I, needed, I didn't know what to do about it. Um, this next part, there's a little bit of kind of Christian undertones in this part of my story, but I'll tell you why. I mean, AA in general has no opinion on outside issues such as those. This, I'm just telling you this because this is the truth of my story. Um, the only way I knew of God at this point was through the church. Um, and they, you know, to take all the stuff out of your pants and all that kind of stuff, take your shoes, and they give you these, like, bright orange sandals. Only person in the jail cell that had anything written on their sandals was me. And it just said, Jesus across the side. And the only thing I could think of was that prayer that I said immediately. Um, absolutely broke down right there in the jail cell, which you don't want to be crying in a jail cell. You just don't. But, <laughs> you know, so, um, my dad at one in the morning gets a call. He comes and bails me out. I, I mean, I, I don't get bailed out until like 7 a.m. that morning, and I'm still just freaking out. Um, then I ask him to just take me to rehab. Take me to any rehab. And he says, no, we don't do that. If you're going to get sober, you're going to get sober. And I'm honestly grateful, absolutely, eternally grateful for him. Because it was the first time my dad truly made me stand on my own two feet for something that I wanted to do. For something that I wanted to do for me. Now, I have nothing against people that went to rehabs or anything like that. Me personally, um, I would probably get distracted because there's females in there. Or there's anything else in there. There's authority figures that I would like to challenge. There's anything. Um, so these AA meetings that I've been told to go to, and I had to go to part of this court thing, and going to it for a few months, leaving them going to get drunk. doesn't work out, by the way, at all. Um, one of the very first AA meetings I went to, they said, they looked at me, this guy named Lance looked me dead in the eye, and he says, you will never be able to drink the same again after this. And I said, watch me. And I couldn't. Um, it was about the time that I started going to AA meetings and drinking afterwards that I really started to realize I was pretty hollow inside. Um, but that day I went to my first one that I actually wanted to go to um, and I'll tell you actually back up a little bit before I got sober I stole a white chip after the meeting so I was that guy yeah because I was going to do it on my own this is going to help me do it on my own it's like a whole symbol of unity but it doesn't really help me do it on my own makes sense right um, didn't work absolutely miserable like, I mean I was I was holding that white chip just kind of rub. I think I rubbed the ridges right off the damn thing um I couldn't do it by myself. That's the thing about this. This, this disease is greater than me. So what do I have to do? I have to, have to find a solution greater than myself to combat that. Um, Einstein once said that a problem cannot be solved at the level at which it was created. That's, that's what I found to be true in AI. Um, so I get sober. How do I do it on time? Not bad. Um, I get sober, and they tell me all these different things. They tell me I have to go to AA meetings, have to, you know, meeting makers make it. Um, it's, it's told me at this point, 
and that I needed to get a sponsor, and I, what's a sponsor? So a sponsor is somebody that you trust that can help you work the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, what I found today is meeting makers make meetings. That's all they make. If you want what we have, then you are willing to go to any length to get them. You're ready to take certain steps. And there's 12 of them. You've got to take them, and you've got to take them in order. And you've got to have somebody else that's gone through them take you through them. Because um, I read the big book by myself and I miss everything. You know what I mean? There's a couple of things that I'm like, oh yeah, that's totally me. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can, you know, I do, you know, see other people taking things with impunity, not knowing what impunity means whatsoever. Yeah, I do see, you know, I do feel not at ease until I feel that, you know, that sense of ease and comfort that comes at once by taking a few drinks. I get that. But, the whole, I get the problem, man, but that solution escaped me. I mean, if I had a solution before I came in here, I wouldn't be in here, man. Trust me, it was the last house in the block for um, I tried everything. I tried philosophy. I tried reading books that were way up above my comprehension level. Like, I was, like, in college, like, reading, like, the Nicomachean Ethics by Aristotle, thinking that was going to help. Didn't at all. I tried reading up on Christianity. Didn't help anything, you know. Um, so I was forced to actually take what you guys suggested and do something with it. Um, started going, after that, I started going to another meeting, 8111, got another sponsor there. That was probably the first time that he actually took me through the steps. I had a sponsor say, you don't get there on time, and we're not going through the steps. So I had to get there on time, get through the steps, and all that kind of stuff. A lot of times I missed it. Appreciate for what he did for me. Um, but I can't say that when I first went through the steps that I did in any way thoroughly. You know, it was about as thorough and honest as I could probably get at that point in my sobriety. Um, but I did step work and all that kind of stuff, kind of like I did homework in high school, like right before class. I was like freaking out trying to get stuff done. I was like, there it is, yeah, right? Yeah, I totally feel like that. You know? Um, but I remember one thing in particular that the fourth step and the fifth step really did something to me. The third step was a big deal, too. Um, but. We never did, we did the first three columns and the fourth column, but we never did the fear inventory or the sex inventory that they talk about later in the book. So that's where it's at, man. That's the goods of this thing. Um, so go through the rest of the steps. I'm not necessarily totally sane at this point, you know? I'm uh, finished the 12 steps. No one wants to be, no one wants to me to sponsor them. Um, but... I'm going to, I'm basically going to meetings and living in the fellowship. Um, calling my sponsor. My sponsor ends up leaving, moving away, and relapses. Um, I picked a guy, a, a guy that seems he was his sponsor and he wants to go through the steps again. And I'm like, I've already been through the steps. I'm going to go through this again. Um, at that point, you know, I do the classy thing that people do in AA. I met a girl and took her as my higher power, in all honesty. Um, there's no other way. It didn't happen right away. At first, I was like, we're going to get to know you. And I remember having a funny conversation with the sponsor at the time. I was like, he was like, you need to get to know this person before you get into a relationship with them. And I, moment of clarity, I went, I don't know how to do that. Well, how the hell do you do that? And he goes, well, I have no idea. But you need to figure out how to do it. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. <laughs> Gotta love the honesty of this program. Um, I didn't. I ended up, we ended up getting in a relationship, 
I ended up stopping, stopped going to AA meetings for a long time, probably in and out of AA meetings, maybe one to two a month for a good 10 months. This is not a good place to be. Um, I will tell you right now that an alcoholic, alcoholism is never my problem. Alcohol was my solution. My problem rests between my ears. It's my thinking, it's the way I perceive the world. Alcohol, like I said, is just my solution. So when I come in here, I have to replace that solution with something spiritual. Um, but at that point, I did not do that. I chose to take a relationship with my higher power. And like a good alcoholic, that's not going to meetings. I totally sped it up. We got engaged and we bought a house. <laughs> at 21 and 22, we decided to buy a house. It was the dumbest decision I've ever, probably ever made. Well, not ever, but it's up there. Um, so, of course, it, it just tanks, man. I mean, I'm an alcoholic without a solution. I'm not taking care of my end. I get in a relationship with somebody when I have not had a spiritual solution. My motives are not clean, and she's not the person, I'll say it this way, she's not the person I believe my higher power would have me be with. Um, and that's the thing about this, this thing. I, I talk to my sponsors a lot about this, and relationships and things like that. Me personally, I can treat a woman like gold, but I will kill myself in the meantime. I will kill myself trying to make sure that person thinks I am the bee's knees. I'm the greatest thing that's ever happened to You know? I can do that with other people. I love, that's why I don't like telling my story. I love for you guys to look at me and think I'm doing all right and not know what's actually going on. You know? I don't like to look at my motives. I don't like to, I don't like to look at my actions. I don't like to do any of that. I just like to make it look like I'm the man. You know? Um, so, it's really bad relationship. Um, it's just toxic. Absolutely codependent in every way. Um, I'm holed up in the room. I get to the point sober, two and a half years sober, completely unemployable. All those agnostic promises that come true completely came true for me. I was a prey to misery and depression. I could not form relationships with other people. Like I said, I couldn't hold down a job because I was too nervous about leaving the house or leaving her, or she was too nervous about leaving me. It was absolutely, it was sick. It was, there's no other way to put it. So I'm completely depressed at this point. I'm hollow again. I don't need alcohol to get hollow, folks. I don't need alcohol to be self-pitying, to be depressed, to be any of those things. I don't. And I'll tell you another thing. I heard a great speaker talk about this. These little cool medical terms we have nowadays, like anxiety disorders and, you know, adjustment disorders, and what's the one that John has, a dual hemisphere personality, whatever, man. I don't know. All these, all these cool things that they have, that we have nowadays. In 39, they didn't have those. They had things like, they had restless, irritable, and discontent. That's what you got. Just funnel yourself in there, man. And that's, when somebody pointed that out to me, pretty true, you know what I mean? Because, I mean, alcoholic, I'm, I'm terminally unique. I will find a way to make sure I'm different from you, so whatever you says doesn't don't apply to me, you know? So I do that. Um, when I kind of humble myself and open myself up and just be a little bit open-minded about maybe this person knows what they're talking about, I can get something out of that, you know? By this point, I'm not there. Um, I get to the point two and a half years sober. I'm standing in some grocery store with beer in my hand wondering if I should buy it, buy it or not. Um, I cannot tell you what made me leave that store empty-handed. 
I mean, I can't. I mean, it's absolutely something I probably did of myself, and I choose to call God nowadays. <laughs> That's what Will said earlier. It's just like, well, these people call God, and they're sober, so I don't know. I guess I'm going to It's pretty true. I don't, nowadays, I have no idea what my higher power is. Um, I can't understand them. It's not my job to understand them, or her, or, or whatever the hell it is. And now, the second I can try to understand my higher power, it's way too small, man. Way too small. That's what's so funny about step three for me, to turn your will and your life over to care of God. As you understand it, as you understand, as you're starting to understand a little bit more about what God's will is for you in your life and the story, try to take these other steps. You know, um, so I came in, I came back to AA. It's the one thing I knew how to do. Totally hollow, two and a half years sober. Um, so I got a homebrew member here named Greg V as the discussion leader at 8111, and for the first time I heard a solution. I mean, just a pure solution. And I was like, what? And I was like, Scooby-Doo the phone? So I asked him to be my sponsor, and we worked the 12 steps as they were meant to be worked. Um, He threw out the agnostic promises real quick for me, told me, is this you? And I was like, yeah, no one's ever shown me those before. Yeah, that's that's absolutely me. And he told me, listen, you're powerless over alcohol, but you're powerless over everything else, too. And that, that was a thought that escaped me this first time. I could, I could dig that I had a problem drinking and I had a problem, you know, doing other stuff. But everything else I thought I had, man. Everything else was kind of cleared up. And that, I found that not to be the case for me. I do not have control over my emotional nature. I don't. My emotions are not based on reality. Big Book points that out pretty clearly to me. You know, um, what I do have control over are my attitudes and my actions. End of story. I don't have control over other people's actions. I don't have control over situations. I don't have control, like I said, over my emotional nature. That's what I have to work with. And I have to trust something bigger than myself to take care of everything else. Um, so, moved on. If I can't do it, what can? Higher power. Get honest, get open minded, and get willing to do this. Man, if you're a newcomer in here and you're scared of God, perfect. We know how you feel. If you can just, a little bit, just honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. If you can just kind of work on those three things, get those under your belt, then you're going to be fine. Bill Wilson says in the 12 and 12, I had to take step two piecemeal at first. You know? Big, tall order. Guy, you know, invented AA, you know? Broke a big book when he was three years sober. It's pretty friggin' miraculous. Of course, he had help. That's a pretty miraculous thing. Especially because when I was three years sober, I was not author-worthy. You know, um, at all. Um, so, what's, what's the next thing? You don't have to believe anything. We're not going to tell you what to believe in. The point is that you believe in something. What is that? Something that's greater than yours, yourself, that I, it must have depth and weight. That's what the big book says. Most, some of us found it grounded in a power greater than ourselves. Okay, I, I, I can dig that. We go through We Agnostics, and there's this really cool part in We Agnostics that I have bookmarked, but books down there, I forgot. Um, that talks about how the truth is that in all of us, there is a living concept of God, if you're willing to see it. Um, but this, the 12 steps never gave me anything. What it did was it took away enough of myself to actually get a lot of God. It takes away my character defects, it takes away my insecurities. Temporarily, As long as I follow what I'm supposed to be doing every day, those things are going to stay by the wayside for the most part. You know? Um, 
Okay, so I got that. What's, what's the deal with step three? Step three, you've got to turn your will and your life over to the care of God as you understood him. I had a great, great realization about that. Or somebody pointed it out to me. and goes, Alex, you're not turning your will and your life over to the care of God. You're not turning control over. You never had control to begin with. The point is that you are accepting the fact that you never had control to begin with. You're surrendering to that fact. That's what step three is about. Step three itself is, all it is is, is a decision to do the rest of the steps. I have no idea what my will or what my life is in step three. I have to do step four to figure that out. And what I find was my will is what I want when I wanted it, and my life is what I got as a pursuit of my will. Not a lot of good stuff. Um, so we go through the fourth step. And it shows me, you know, we do the three columns. It shows me my part. It points out a couple things that I didn't realize, and we go through the fears. And I'm like, this is very important. What are you talking about? We're going to do this the first time. You know? And that was the most amazing experience for me because literally every fear that I had, and I can think of some esoteric fears to make myself feel good, you know what I mean? I remember looking back at some of my fears and it's like, I'm afraid. I can't even remember anything. But this is just like, I'm afraid that I'm not who I think I am that I think I am. You know, just like stupid stuff, you know what I mean? Whatever. And folks, every fear that I've ever had, every resentment that I've ever had has been based on fear. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that, I believe, is the root of our problem. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-pity, it's all fear, whatever I want to call it. My self-pity is fear. My anger is fear. Everything comes down to fear. And it all comes down to fear of not getting something that I want or losing something that I have. And a sponsor told me, I was like, why do you think, you know, and it's, it's my selfishness and my self-centeredness. And a sponsor come up to me and goes, I'm really depressed. I'm just wallowing in self-pity. I was like, well, you're an egotistical prick. Of course you're going to be doing that. I mean, you're <laughs> egotistical. I'm, 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 like, depressed about stuff. All right. I was like, man, literally what you're saying is whatever God is giving me today is not good enough. It's, in fact, it's so not what I deserve that I'm going to stop doing whatever he actually wants me to do and just think about it. Like, I mean, yeah. And he was like... Okay, that makes sense. And I was like, and I literally hung the phone. I was like, where the hell did that come from? You know what I mean? Yeah, but that's what it comes down to, man. It's all about living in fear when I'm out there. Just, and, I mean, it's to the point where I heard a great guy talk about this. Nothing that I really say in here, by the way, is of my own making. I have heard people say things, and I picked up on it. That's really all I'm doing up here is just talking stuff that was taught to me. You know, um, but a great guy came up here and he was just like, your fears are so complex that by the time I'm going in somewhere, by the time I'm going to wherever I'm going, I mean, I have this unrational fear that I need to get something out of the situation that I'm going into. The point where I'm not going to be okay until I get what I need out of this or else everything's just going to go haywire. You know? It's unbelievable. God gives me everything that I need if I just do his will. God, I mean, that, that's it, man. That's it. I'm not to scrounge out anything else. You know? What I've been told is God answers prayers in two ways. Yes and no, I have something better in store. Hold your horses. You know? Hard to do, obviously. But I go through the fifth step, and I'm totally honest about everything that I've done. You know, it was easy for me to do because I was that way with my first sponsor. And my, you know, Greg told me the things that... He's done that he's ashamed of, and it was a really cool experience. I mean, the fifth step, I love doing fifth step responses, too, because I love, I mean, 
That's the idea the same way my sponsor did. He laid out the couple things that he would promise he'd never tell anyone. Right off the bat. So or was it right after? Right after, after I finished all like the little stuff, I'm like, okay, this and that. He's like, well, I did this. What else have you done? I'm like, it's amazing. I have also done this. And it made things so much easier. Yeah. Um, I get, so he's like, what do you, you know, we're going to give these back up to God. And the cool thing about, you know, the sixth and the seventh step and all that is it's literally just, God, I'm giving you these. You know, I'm not telling you which ones I have to move because, you know, my own will, I will remove the wrong character defects. I will remove the wrong parts of myself. I mean, it's not just my character defects. It's getting my strengths. It's getting everything. I will remove the wrong parts of myself thinking that I'm doing God's will. So I have to give it up to him. I have to not try to work on it directly. I have to do this thing by helping other people along the way. And I can't tell you how many times, like Will was talking about, there's been so many times in this program that I have not wanted to do something, but I do it anyway because people tell me it works. And every single time after I do it, it works. And I hate that because that means I'm wrong, man. You know? Um, and every single time afterwards, it could be the exact same solution, a very similar problem. And I'll say, nope, it's going to be completely different this time. Sponsor, you're out of your mind. You don't know what you're talking about. I do it anyway, and it works. It's a pain in the ass, man. But um, I go on to this thing, and I make the I make my amends, and that's a that's an amazing experience to be able to talk to people that I hated. I mean, just hated for a long time. The girl I was engaged to. Oh yeah, we broke up a lot of while back. Um, that ended when I realized that after my fifth step that this is absolutely not the kind of person that God wants me to be. You know? Um, time went on and I realized that. So I luckily, thank, by the grace of God, I'm no longer in that relationship. Um, so I'm moving on. I got to actually make amends to that person. You know? I got to sit down and say, this is what I did wrong. Clear my side of the street. And it was okay. I don't hate that person anymore. I don't hate the people that used to make fun of me when I was little. I don't hate the people that, you know, did enough for me, you know what I mean, to try to stop what I was doing, to try to stop this path of destruction I was on. But all I saw was they were getting in my way. You know what I mean? I don't have to hate people today. It's, it's a fantastic experience. I move on, and I go through the 10th and the 11th step and the 12th step. They kind of do them sequentially. I will say, the 10th step is not, you don't do a 10th step at night. You don't. If, if, you, if you do not believe me, open up your big book to page 86 and talk and read about the step. Actually, the step that starts at 85 at the bottom and it goes on to 86. What you're doing at night when you're doing your little daily recap is the 11th step. That question's in there to talk about. It. Your 10th step is ongoing thing throughout the day. You know, it's like that little kind of like, that, like the little inner, inner dialogue with God. Like going on, doing my thing, kind of okay. I think I'm doing pretty well, God. What do you think? Doing all right? Am I missing anything? Yeah. Make amends where I kind of feel like it. It's that whole concept, that I, that whole little inner part of me that I never had that was like, I'm sorry, I just did something totally selfishly. Sorry about that. And you kind of correct yourself. I never had that before. I have a little bit of that now. You know? So move on to the 11th step. I get to meditate about my day in the morning and meditate about my day at night. And my sponsor... I'm pointing this out to me because I hate the idea of meditating. I mean, that's weird, man. I mean, this is weird. 
Okay, you guys like hippie stuff. I don't really like that. You know what I mean? I'm done smoking pot, right? Yeah. Um, but he told me, Alex, you're not sitting on a log in a, one of those little Buddhist toga-looking things going om or anything like that. Meditation is, what meditation literally mean, meant in 1939 is to think deeply upon it. What it says in our book is we, upon awakening, we, you know, we think about our day. We think about the 24 hours ahead. And that's what I found. And then it says we conclude this period of meditation, or prayer, or whatever. Um, and I found that to be the case. Literally, meditation for me is to think deeply upon the day that I have ahead. If I have anything, okay, God, today is this day. I have this, 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 and this. If there's any points along those days that I'm not really sure what to do or how to go about it, I ask God for help. And I'll tell you, I'm one of the busiest guys I know. I'm even before I got sober, I was flunking out of school. Today I'm about to graduate. There's a good possibility I'm going to go to, I'm going to get my master's in statistics. <laughs> you know? Jesus. You know? I've got a C in pre-calculus. You know? Um, and I work full-time, and I sponsor guys, and all these things that I'm, I'm absolutely blessed to have in my life. I look at my day, and I'm like, that's absolutely ridiculous. You know, I mean, there's no chance I'm going to get all that done during the day. But I'll tell you what, if I meditate in the morning, if I get everything done, great. If I don't get everything done, I'm not freaking out about it. You know, I'm not fearful about what's going to happen the next day when I still have this on my, on my plate. It's an amazing experience. And what's even more than that, upon having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, I get an idea about what my higher power is by the end of this day. Step three, I didn't have that. I have that now. And I get to do the most amazing thing, folks. I get to help guys who never been... Th- who are absolutely struggling just living. Actually get on their own two feet, get a higher power, and get this thing. I mean, it's the most honor. It's such an honor when people ask me to sponsor them because they're literally saying, hey, I'm going to die unless you help me save my life. Unless you help me find a higher power. I'm not going to say I save my life whatsoever. God does that. But you literally find, you help, you can, please help me find a way for me to live as a whole human being, you know? And I don't think the full steps is reserved to just AA work. I think part of your 12 step is literally to carry this message into all of your affairs. To be an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous in your work life, in your school life, in your social life, all those things. Because you never know. You may, you will be the only walking, talking big book a lot of people will ever see. You know? And, I mean, truly, that's, that's what this thing's about for me today. It's about just trying a little bit to maybe help somebody else out a little bit. And that's not me, man. That's not being my nature. I don't like to help people. You know? That's God's work. That's God doing for me what I can't do for myself. And truly, folks, I'm so thankful to be up here today, to be in front of my home group. I love you all deeply. That's really all I have. Thank you so much.